Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11 this morning, and uh, looking forward to diving into this section. I, I was thinking this morning as I thought through the passage last week again and where we are this week, um, I, I did not plan again exactly where we would be at the beginning of the year. My hope was in the beginning of November that we would make it through chapter 10, and uh, we didn't. We had one week left. And then as I thought about it this morning, I think it's pretty significant that we started um, the year with Christ starting really his last trip to Jerusalem, his full trip to Jerusalem, and he, he really turned and took the next step in his life and ministry, uh, which ultimately brought about our salvation through his obedience to the Father. And uh, if you think about your kids or children, how many of you would say obedience is a big deal for kids? Wow, none of you are very strict parents. Anybody? Like, can we try that again? How many of you would say obedience is a big deal for your kids? You want your kids to be obedient. Okay. Now, who are we? We're God's children. Do you think obedience is important for us as well? It certainly is. So as we go through this, this last section of Mark's gospel, I, I say last section like we're almost done. Um, we're going to be here a while, uh, but I pray that we would just focus in on this idea of Christ's next steps and his obedience to the Father and the eternal plan that the Godhead had put together to bring about salvation for all of humanity. I do want to say thank you for those who uh, reached out. Olivia had surgery on Friday, and she's doing really well. Very excited uh, for how she is um, doing. I said, you might be well enough to go to school tomorrow. And she said, no, Dad, I'm not there yet. Not there yet. So she's, she's recovering still in her mind, probably for the next week or so. But Mark chapter 11, the title of our time together this morning is Our Faithful Savior, Our Faithful Savior. I want to have a quick word of prayer again, and as I pray, I ask you to pray that God would speak to our hearts, that we would be obedient to Him. God, we ask this morning, as we come to Your Word, um, that our hearts would be fixed on the person of Christ. God, that as we think about the steps that He took on this road that would lead Him eventually to the cross, God, we understand that while it did lead him to the cross, it also led to the resurrection. Because Christ is risen again, God, we have hope. This hope is eternal, and we talk about that often. That we will be with Jesus. We will go to, to where he is, God, as he has prepared a place for us. And we think about that with great joy, but God, may it also give us great hope in the here and now. And certainly there are many in the room, many watching online, God, who are facing hard things. Things that, that are causing them to have more questions than they have answers. God, things that cause them to wonder if it's even worth following anymore, if this is the way life is going to be. And God, I pray this morning that through our time in your word, that you would encourage our hearts that it is always worth it to follow you. May we never look back with regret in our lives as we've taken steps to follow you. May we only move forward with excitement. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would do great work in our hearts as we think about, as we consider, as we dwell on the idea of our faithful Savior. And may his faithfulness to us increase our faithfulness to you. We thank you, God. We ask that you'd work in our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What would you do if you knew you were entering the last week of your life? As I said a few weeks ago, I often find myself thinking about the end of life 
on this earth, not in a, a morbid way, but in a preparatory way. Thinking about the end of our lives allows us, in some regards, to move forward with purpose and intention as we approach the inevitable reality of death. Christ was now on his way to Jerusalem, and last week we saw that he was divinely delayed as Bartimaeus, the blind man, called out to him and said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Christ stopped in, in, his, in his tracks. He, he heard the cry amongst the noise of the crowd, and he miraculously healed this faith-filled man who then, be, then became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. As this crowd continued on their way, the next scene is one that all four Gospels record for us. And I just want to encourage you, if you ever read something that all four Gospels hone in on, probably a good idea to pay attention to that thing. And so as Christ is making his way to Jerusalem, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, under the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit, chose to prioritize this event because it truly is a turning point in the life of Christ. This passage is probably most well known as the title, The Triumphal Entry. The scene begins the final days of Christ's life on this earth, and as it has always been, Everything he does from this point on is very intentional, and everything he does points to his purpose in coming. And so I ask you again, if you had one week left, what would you do? As we go through these next several chapters that reveal to us the end of the life of Christ and his final days on this earth, we can probably glean a lot from these things that we see. And if we approach them with the right heart and mind, I believe we'll find these last chapters to be some of the most transformational chapters in all of Mark's gospel. The big idea this morning is this. Christ's focus never waned during his time on earth. In his last days, we see that his determination was as intense as it was in the beginning of his ministry. This is a worthy saying. Christ is always faithful, for Christ never changes. I want to talk through this section of verses, similar to how we did it last week. We'll walk through them all, and then we'll come back and pull out a few things that I think will be helpful to us as we think about the faithfulness of our Savior. And so we'll pick it up in verse number one. The Bible says, and when they came nigh to Jerusalem, the they there would be talking about Jesus and his 12 disciples and Bartimaeus and all of the crowd that was with him. Uh, we have to remember that, that Mark is telling us these things, at least in this point, sequentially. And so they came to Jericho, they passed through Jericho, Jesus heals Bartimaeus at the dismay of the crowd, and then Bartimaeus gets up and walks with Jesus, and the whole band of people, the whole mob of people, the whole crowd continues until they get to Jerusalem. And verse number one here is kind of an overview of the whole journey. Jesus is, or Mark is saying, this is the things that took place. This is the way things happened. They walked together until they made it to Jerusalem. In verse number one, the Bible says, when they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he, meaning Jesus, sends forth two of his disciples. Now there's speculation over who these disciples were. Was it Peter and John? Some say that it was because they were some of the most trustworthy disciples that Jesus had, that he had invested heavily into. But the reality is we don't know. Wouldn't it be cool if it was Bartimaeus and somebody else? That Jesus says, hey, you're now following me, and I've got a mission for you to go into this city and do this thing that I'm going to tell you to do. 
In verse number two, the Bible says, and he tells them, those two disciples, go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat, loose him and bring him. This scene is not taking place inside the city walls of Jerusalem, but it was taking place in Bethany. Now, what do we know about Bethany? Who lived in Bethany? Some of Jesus' dearest friends. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was Passover time. And so the population of Jerusalem had probably tripled in size. And when the population triples in size during the Passover time, they would temporarily expand the city limits of Jerusalem to include these other places. So when it says they were in Jerusalem, in part, they were in Jerusalem, but in reality, they were not fully in Jerusalem. And so if it sounds confusing, it kind of is. And I hope I made it more confusing for you. Anyways, Jesus looks at these disciples and he says, I want you to go your way into the village over against you, which was Bethany. And as soon as you enter it, you're going to find this colt tied that never a man has sat upon. I want you to loose him and bring him to me. Now, I'm sure when these two disciples got called up from the ranks, and Jesus says, I have a mission for you. At first, they're kind of excited, right? And then Jesus gives them the mission. He says, I want you to go into the city and I want you to do this thing for me. Just go find this colt and bring him back to me. Now, if you're the disciples, would you have some questions in your mind? This would be like Jesus saying, I want you to go to Main Street and you're going to find there a red Camaro convertible. Hop in it and bring it to me probably going to face some opposition, right? This wasn't Jesus's cult. This wasn't the disciples' cult. This, from the way the text reads, and I don't think this is the case, this is a random cult, but I, I think Jesus had done a little bit of planning beforehand to prepare this scene for his disciples. Nevertheless, Jesus says it. This is what he tells them. And I, I would ask you today, would you have gone? Jesus says, I want you to go get this cult for me. Would you have questioned him? Would you have said, Jesus, but what if? Jesus, how about this? Or Jesus, is there another way? Well, as we read on, the Bible says that these men do this. In verse number three, Jesus gives them a little clarity. He says, if any man say unto you, why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. Now again, this, this has a couple different options as far as how this all took place. Think with me, could this be a supernatural work of the incarnate Christ saying, hey, there's a cult there, I want you to go get him, and if somebody questions you, just tell him the Lord has need of him, and he's going to let you go. Could God do that? Could Christ do that? He absolutely could. There could have been no prior planning, there could have been no prior meeting that Jesus had set this up or had somebody else set this up. It could have simply been that the God who is in control of all things was in control of this very situation and allowed these things to align so that his cult would be there so his disciples could bring him to Jesus. That certainly is one option, and it's a plausible option. Why? Because our God can do whatever our God wants to do. Could it be that Jesus had set this meeting up beforehand? Absolutely. Had Jesus been to Jerusalem before? Certainly he had. Like any good Jewish person, he tried to get there as often as he could for these religious holidays uh, to, to, to worship, to honor God in the way that God deserves to be honored. 
So could it be that Christ, in the last time he was there, said, hey, next time the Passover rolls around, I need you to tie your cult up here, and I'm going to send my servants to get it. Could that happen? It certainly could. Christ could have planned anything he wanted to plan in any way that he wanted to plan it. And the latter almost seems more of, like more of an option than, than the first one because of the, the code word that's given. If you came to me, to my house, and said, I'm going to take your truck because the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Give me a better reason, right? What are you going to do with my truck? What, what do you need it for? I'll probably loan it to you, but I at least want to know what's going on. And it's almost as if that phrase, the Lord has need of him, was a code word or a key word that Jesus had given those faithful believers in Bethany to have this thing prepared for him in the time and the day that he wanted it prepared. However you want to think of it, it doesn't really change things because it reveals to us in the end that God has a plan. And aren't you thankful today that God has a plan? In all things and at all times, God has a plan. Was there a reason that Jesus needed a cult on this day for a, for a specific time? There absolutely was, and we're going to get into that. And we must never lose sight that, that God has been working all things together for his eternal plan to come to fruition, and this is a part of that very plan, as we'll see in just a little while. So the Lord has need of him. And so in verses 4 through 6, these disciples take Jesus at, their, at his word, and they go. And the Bible says they went, and they found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And just as Jesus said in verse number 5, a certain person stood up and said to them, hey, what are you doing with my colt? And what is their response? They simply say, the Lord has need of him. And what do the men do? They say, go ahead, have your way. Take the colt and do with it what you need to do. I'm sure those disciples were a little relieved, right? That they didn't get beat up or, 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 or uh, worse, killed for taking somebody else's colt. Certainly that would have been a huge offense. And they grab that colt from inside Bethany and they bring it to where Jesus was. And the Bible says that when they get back there in verse number seven, as they brought the colt to Jesus, that people that were there in that crowd, the disciples and the multitude that were following Jesus, they take off their clothes, their garments, their outer garment, and they lay them on the colt. And Jesus climbs on that colt. And understand this, this is the first time that that colt had ever had a person sit on him before. Now this is significant for a couple of reasons. One, have you ever tried to ride, well, I've never ridden many horses, but I have tried to ride a dog before, and it doesn't go well, right? Dogs don't want to be ridden. They don't want you to get on their back. They're going to bounce around and try to buck you off. And if you've ever watched an old Western when they're trying to break in a horse, it takes a lot of effort. Some of you are familiar with horses. Patsy had horses. I know Dave and Heidi are sick today, but they have horses. And, and breaking a horse to get to ride it is a big deal. The Sanders have had horses. Do you still have horses? No horse. Jeff says no more horses, right? No more horses. <laughs> it's a big deal. And so for Jesus to, to casually climb on this colt that had never been ridden before, what does it reveal to us? 
that this was not an ordinary situation, that Jesus was not an ordinary man, that he was controlling all things and bringing all things together. And as he climbed on this cult, it's a reminder to us that he is sovereign over all of his creation, even an insignificant animal that others would have looked past in this moment. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of the power of Christ. And so they begin throwing their, their coats on this cult, and Jesus climbs on the cult, and the people begin to go crazy, don't they? They begin to chant things and scream things and rejoice in a way that had not happened up until this point. People were typically excited when they saw Jesus, but when they saw Jesus do this, their emotions changed. Everything was different. Now, were they a little misguided in the conclusions that they drew? Unfortunately, they were. But the cry that they cried was true nonetheless. The things that they said from their mouths were true. Is this a triumphant king? He certainly is. Was he coming to set up a kingdom? In some ways he was, not fully and finally at this point, but it's pointing to the kingdom that he would set up eventually when he comes again. And as he climbs on this cult, it's almost a sign of peace as the Prince of Peace has come to bring his peace to all people. But guess what, friends? When he comes back, it's not as the Prince of Peace. It says the conquering king. And though this time he rides in on an animal of peace, the next time he comes, he will ride in on a war horse. And what will he do? He will finally and fully establish his kingdom that all who have believed throughout every age will get to be a part of. And I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to that day. What a beautiful day it will be. And what a beautiful day this was because it was revealing the future of what would happen as Christ continued to follow the perfect plan of the Godhead. Verse number eight doesn't stop with them throwing their garments on the cult, but they spread their garments in the way and they cut down palm branches off the trees and they strawed them or put them down in the pathway to show honor, to show respect, to show reverence because they were recognizing something about this man that even they didn't fully understand. Verse number nine, the scene continues and it wasn't just that they took off their outer garments and put them on the donkey or the, the colt and put them on the ground. It wasn't just that they cut palm branches and put them on the ground, but then they began to cry saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What were they saying? Essentially, they were saying, save us. We need a savior and you are the one who can save us. You are the one who will save us. This is really a quotation from Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 that says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And as they're reciting this psalm, as they're quoting this psalm, the reality is they're saying more than they even knew in this moment. They were thinking of physical saving, weren't they? They were thinking of freedom from oppression, freedom from a Roman government that had invaded their territory. They were thinking about freedom to do what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it. And so they're saying, save now. And they recognize Jesus as the son of David. But think back. Who was it that started this chant 
down the road. Was it not blind Bartimaeus? What did he cry when he heard Jesus coming? Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I think it's significant. As I pondered these things in my mind last night, that the man that the crowds were trying to silence is now the man that the crowds are imitating in their cry. And so as they looked at him as, as nothing, as they looked at him as one who should be cast aside, now they're in essence saying the same thing. They were saying, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord again. Though they were misguided in their conclusion, they were correct in this truth that Jesus was indeed the greater son of David. He was the true king of Israel. He was the conquering warrior. And he was coming to liberate his people, not nationally, but spiritually. Jesus didn't come to kick out nations who had invaded Israel, but he came to deal with sin that had invaded the hearts of men. And friend, as we think about our Savior today, are we thankful that he didn't just come to kick out people that invaded a nation? Are we thankful today that he came to deal with the true problem, which is the sin in all of humanity? It's interesting, as these were crying this on that day, is not this what people are still crying today? We need a Savior And what happens? Every four years, a new Savior rises up. Oh, this is the one who's going to right all wrongs. I was listening to, I don't watch the news. As I was at, it's, it's just frustrating to me, but I was at the hospital with Olivia Friday and they had the news on. Two thoughts. First off, news has become more of an entertainment show than it is actually news. Like, I was disgusted as I watched it. It's like, what, what are we even doing here? Just, just share the facts, right? Secondly, as you watch the candidates give their spiel and their, their advertisements that are approved by them, who really cares, right? What do they make? A bunch of bold promises that they're not going to make good on. What does Jesus make? Promises that will always come true. And so who is our hope in, friends? It's in Christ alone. Who is our hope in? It's one who has come to save. It's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It is the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And Jesus is his name. And he will set up his kingdom fully and finally when God ordains it. But until then, you know what we need to be recognizing? His kingdom in the here and now. When was the kingdom of Christ first seen? When was the kingdom of God first seen? It was first seen in part in the coming of Christ to this earth as he robed himself in flesh and took on humanity. The kingdom is seen in part then. When has the kingdom continued to be seen? Well, it's been seen as the gospel is preached and as believers bow to the authority of their king. And one day it will fully and finally be seen when Christ establishes that kingdom for all of eternity. As it has been through the gospel of Mark, as this, this crowd of people, as this parade of people makes their way into Jerusalem, the Pharisees see what's going on here, and Luke's gospel tells us that they were pretty disturbed by it for a couple of different reasons. I'm sure the Roman government was also pretty disturbed by it, though they probably laughed it off because here's this man that they're proclaiming king riding on a colt. That's not very victorious. That's not very, very uh, threatening but I'm sure they were still concerned. The Pharisees were concerned. Why? Because Jesus was disrupting the thing they had going on. 
They come to Jesus and say, hey, you need to get your disciples to stop. And what does Jesus say? If I tell them to stop, the rocks are going to cry out. Why? Because all of creation in this moment was beginning to recognize the reality of who Jesus was. He deserved to be praised. He deserved to be magnified. He deserved to be lifted up. And when Jesus said those words, I'm sure the Pharisees got even more angry and their determination to kill him that we saw all the way back in Mark chapter 3, what was burning with even greater passion now, we must do something to this Jesus. And they would. They would deliver him. They would try him. They would get him crucified. But not because this was their plan but because this was part of the eternal plan of God. And as we get into verse number 11, the Bible says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. What a day this must have been for Christ. I'm sure that moment when he set his face towards Jerusalem, as he shifted his heart towards this reality that this was the final trip in totality that he would take to this place where he would eventually give his life. I'm sure the emotions he experienced were more intense than ever before. I'm sure as he, he got on that donkey, I imagine a little grin coming across his face. Why? Not because he loved the applaud of men, because he was thinking that for all of eternity, this is the plan. For all of eternity, these were the things that were meant to happen, that I would come, Jesus is thinking, that I would take on flesh, that I would become a man and live a perfect and sinless life. And this is now the beginning of the end. And though they were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And though they did not understand what it was they were saying, Jesus understood. And as he boarded that donkey, as he climbed on that donkey, and as he made his way into Jerusalem, he had now greater confidence than ever before in the perfect and eternal plan of God the Father. As he gets to the temple, the Bible says that he gets off his, his donkey. Well, we can conclude that. He makes his way into the inner chambers of the temple and he begins to look around. The Bible says he looks upon all things. Now, was this the first time Jesus had been to the temple? No. If we think back, when he was 12 years old, what was he doing in the temple? He was correcting the errors of the religious back then. And what did he come to do finally and fully? To correct the errors of the religious through his death and resurrection. And as he was found by Mary and Joseph, as they saw him teaching the teachers, what does he say? I must be about my father's business. And as he looks around the temple on this day, certainly thinking of all the religious hypocrisy that had taken place in this day, thinking about how, how they had taken advantage of the poor and, and the sick and the ill and the rich, for that matter, taking advantage of everyone they could possibly take advantage of. Jesus comes and he's thinking in his mind that with all the hypocrisy that has happened in this place, I am the one who will finally set it straight. Again, not lifting up himself in pride or in arrogance, but thinking again fully about the plan of God. And I imagine that there was something in Jesus that said, hey, let 
let's get this thing going. But what does he say? He looks round about at all things, and then he turns and he goes back to Bethany with the twelve. Why? Because he was submitted to the perfect plan of God in everything. At all times and in all ways, he was submitted to the perfect plan of God. And again, this is what we know as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry of Christ. And truthfully, the triumphal entry is really when he comes up out of the grave. That's when he's truly triumphant. That's when he's truly victorious. But this is a sign pointing to that thing that would one day happen as Christ came to be the Savior of the world. Now, there's the text. And now I want to pull three things from it today, quick things, actually, that hopefully will be a help to us as we think about our faithful Savior. The first thing we see is a promise kept. A promise kept. Simple truth. Jesus tells those two disciples as he calls them up from the crowd, go and get the colt. Tell them that the master has need of it and bring the cult to me. Christ said it, the disciples believed it, and the rest is really history. And while we know this is a common truth, it's something that we would do well to let rest in our minds, that the promises of God are always true, friend. Do you believe that today, that the promises of God are always true? As Christ looked at his disciples on that day, and he said, go get the cult, do you realize there was never a doubt in Christ's mind that the cult was going to be there? There was never a question in the mind of Christ that this cult was, was accidentally taken by somebody else to do some other thing, or maybe that they had taken this cult to give him training so that he could actually be climbed upon and ridden. No, Christ says, go get the cult. Why? Because it was part of the eternal plan of God. And what did they find when they got there? That there was a cult tied up outside of a specific house. And then what took place? Jesus says, well, if any man questions you, this is what you should tell him. And what did they find? That somebody questioned them. And what did they do? They said the master has need of it. And what happened? They sent them on their way. We understand this reality and For some, you may be saying, man, this is too simple of a truth for me. If you say this is too simple of a truth for you, you know what I would say to you? Then you probably haven't really gone through any sort of significant trial in your life. Why? Because when you go through the trial, what does your mind tend to do? Doubt the very promises of God. When you go through a trial, even as a a seasoned Christian, somebody who has been faithful to God for all the years of their lives, in some way, you're doubting. Sometimes our doubts are verbally expressed and that I don't think God is going to do this. You know how sometimes our doubts are expressed? When we try to do things through our own strength and our own power. We think we have to take control. If those disciples walked into town on this day and they see the cult and they're, they're like secret agent man, right, sneaking around the city, and one says, you go and I'll, I'll cover you while you go untie the cult. And then somebody comes out of the house and says, hey, what are you doing with the cult? And they punch the guy in the face and they take off running. What is that? That's living in your own power and in your own strength. And yet how many of us have faced trials in our lives where difficulties have been more than we can 
manage and bear, and we're quick to respond with, I got this. I, I don't need God's promise. I can figure this out on my own. The promise was kept. Jesus said, this is how it's going to be, and that's exactly how it was. As I mentioned, Jesus came in this time as a peaceful uh, participant, so to speak, in the eternal plan of God, but one day he's coming again, and that's a promise. It's a promise that we can rest in. It's a promise that we can rely on, and what's going to be written on his thigh when he comes riding on that war horse? Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Spurgeon said this about Christ. His name is faithfulness, and I know it, for he has never forsaken me, though my troubles have multiplied upon me. Do you appreciate the faithfulness of your Savior? Do you appreciate the fact that he's, he's never hoodwinked you? He's never pulled the wool over your eyes? He's never deceived you in any way, shape, or form? That his promises are always yes and amen? that his promises will always be. As we think about the life and ministry of Christ, even just in Mark's gospel alone, what did people experience every time Jesus said, your faith hath made you whole? What did they experience? Wholeness. What does that prove to us? That his promises are always true. He always keeps his promises. I don't know if this group is still around, but when I was a kid, there was a, a group called the Promise Keepers. Anybody heard of the Promise Keepers? Um, we had a neighbor, my, my dad wasn't a part of it, but we had a neighbor, he was a part of it. And uh, unfortunately, I, and I don't say this, and I'm not going to tell you his name, so in any way other than to say, he wasn't a promise keeper. He would go to these things, and he would make all these claims, and he would put himself up on a pedestal to say, look what I've done, look who I am, look at me, look at me, look at me. And he never kept a promise. Do you realize today that when Christ says, I will, he will. That when Christ says, I have, he has. That when Christ says he's coming, he's coming. And as we think about this reality, this simple truth that he kept his promise, friend, if he didn't keep a promise, then guess what? He would not be God. But he has kept every single promise. And I would dare you to go through the history of your own life and try to find a time where Christ was not faithful to keep his word. Do you know what you'll find? It's not there. And it will never be there. Why? Because he's always faithful. And as we read through the Gospels and we understand the things that Christ did and the way that Christ did them, it was always pointing to this reality that he was indeed God in the flesh. And as we think through our lives, and we think through the areas of our lives where we have seen his promises come to be, guess what, friend? That gives us hope that the promises that are not yet fulfilled will also come to be. Why is it that in 1 Thessalonians, as Paul wrote to this great church who was doing great things, that he had to encourage them in hope. Because don't we often get so distracted by so many things that tear away our hope from our fingers? How many of you have ever had somebody break a promise to you? How many of you have ever broken a promise to somebody else? We all have. But Christ never fails. He never fails, and he never will fail. 
And so the first lesson we can learn about our faithful Savior is that there's a promise kept. But why is it important that Christ has kept His promise? Well, because His promises are directly tied to the previously given prophecies, and that's the second point today, a prophecy fulfilled. As we look at this story, and we were to remove it from the context of Scripture, from the whole of Scripture, we see this cute fairy tale of a guy saying, hey, go get me a cult, and the people go get a cult, and Jesus hops on the cult, and he rides into the city. But we understand there's much more to this, don't we? We understand that that the reality that Jesus even called for a cult to be gotten in the first place was so that he could fulfill a promise that was given all the way back in the Old Testament. As the scripture says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As that promise was given all the way back in Zechariah, guess what people were waiting for? Somebody to ride in and save them. Somebody who would come and do works that had never been done before. And everything up until this point was pointing to the reality that Jesus was that guy. For all of Israel's history, they wanted a king. Why? So that they could conquer instead of being conquered. And while they did conquer physically at times, the reality is they were still conquered spiritually. And so what did they need? They needed one to come in the name of the Lord. They needed the son of David, the true king of Israel, to come and give them not nationalistic freedom, but spiritual freedom from the bondage of sin that was holding them captive by their own choices, by their own doing. They needed somebody to come and rescue them. And so when Jesus tells these disciples, go get that colt and bring him to me. And as Jesus climbs on that colt, these people are picturing in their mind the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Here he is. That This is why it's called the triumphal entry, because the king had come. And while their hopes and dreams were for one thing, isn't it true that Jesus always exceeds our hopes and dreams? And while they wanted physical saving, Jesus says, I understand that life is hard, but I'm going to give you something better. As they thought about what Jesus said and what Jesus promised, truthfully, there was probably some there in that time that said, but this doesn't seem better. Why can't you just do what we want you to do? Or why can't you do both? And why didn't he? Why why didn't he? Because he was submitted to the eternal plan of God. And it was God's plan that Christ would come to be the Savior of the world. And as we think about this prophecy fulfilled, it gives us great hope, as we've already said, because as the prophecies were fulfilled then, the prophecies will be filled in the future as well. Christ was aware of all that would take place. Christ was aware that this cult had significance. Christ was aware that it needed to be a cult on that nobody had ever ridden before. Christ was aware of the crowd's excitement that this would happen. Christ was aware of the the, the Pharisees, how they would criticize him and his people for being so boisterous in their attempts to overthrow the religious settings of that day. Christ was aware of the government, how they would accuse him, how they would try him, how they would crucify him. But Christ was also aware that one day he would rise again. 
And as he rose again, friend, he brought true victory with him. As he rose again, he brought salvation for all who would place their faith and trust in him. So we see the promise kept. The disciples found things just as Jesus said they would find them. And I would encourage you to think about this in your life, that when you truly follow Jesus, you will find things just as Jesus said they would be. It doesn't mean it's all roses, because what did Jesus say? They hated me, they're going to hate you too. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't think we're the greatest people in the world for the values we hold and the beliefs that we have. Understand they're going to hate us. It's a promise kept. Understand that the promise kept leads us to understand that there's a prophecy fulfilled. And this one prophecy leads us to understand there are other greater prophecies that will be fulfilled as well through the person of Jesus Christ. Every promise is yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. And though we wish he would come back now, friend, can we understand today that his timing is always perfect, that his plan is always good, and that when he does come, it'll be the best time. Why? For that's the time that the Godhead has determined. The final thing this morning that I want us to consider is a proposition to consider. What does Jesus tell those disciples? Go get the cult. Go get the cult. They had a choice. They could have said, Nah, Jesus, we'd rather stay right here with you. They could have said, Jesus, that sounds kind of like a risky thing to do. Go steal somebody's cult. Uh, can you choose somebody else? But they didn't. They heard the words of Christ, and they simply went and did as he asked. And though we don't know their names, who do we talk about every year at Easter? The two disciples who did what? They simply obeyed the words of Christ. Would you go get the cult? Would you go get the cult? In your life right now, are you going to get the cult? This morning, he's here. I'll pick on him. I got up and took my shower and came into Noah's room. I said, Noah, you got to get up, take a shower. I went back, finished getting ready. I came up, uh, back to his room. Where was he? Still in bed. He's a teenage boy. Let's, let's give him a break, right? Can I tell you as a dad, and, and you may say this, you shouldn't talk about your kids like this in church. Well, you're not preaching, so you can do differently when you preach. As a dad, what did I expect when I walked into his room the second time? I expected to not see him there. Why? Because I told him to do something. Friend, where in our lives has God said, do this? And we have had delayed obedience. Do you know what delayed obedience in reality is? Disobedience. 
So what's the cult in your life? What is the thing that God is saying, hey, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to be a part of my eternal plan, taking part in something that, that is much bigger than you are, taking part in something that is going to have bigger results than you can even imagine. What is it that God is saying to you right now? This is my plan for you. I want you to do it, and I want you to be excited about it. And yet we're sitting there saying, well, it's kind of cold out this morning. I'll do it, but there's some things I'd like to do first. I'll go. I'll give. I'll serve. But it's got to be on my terms. I'll be faithful. As long as I'm the bar of what faithfulness is. What's the cult, friends? What is the thing in your life that God has said, hey, do this? Or maybe what is the thing in your life that God has said, hey, stop doing that? Because there are those things as well, right? What are the things in our lives that, that we have allowed ourselves to be complacent over? What if these two disciples, when Jesus said, go get the cult, they made their way into Bethany and they saw the equivalent of McDonald's. I don't know. And they're like, oh man, it's been so long since we've been here. And they went in and had a meal and got distracted and delayed. Silly examples, right? But what's the cult? You say, this isn't a very deep sermon. Friend, I think it's deeper than we realize. Because each of us has something in our lives that God is saying, this is my plan for you. And we're saying, but I don't really like that plan. I don't really like that script. I don't really like that story. And so I'm going to do my own thing. In this text, we have again seen the faithfulness of our Savior and in part, I think one of the reasons God gives us so many examples of the faithfulness of Christ so that we would be compelled to be faithful as well. Friend, if he is faithful to us, which he is, and he has been, and he always will be, that should drive something deep inside of our hearts that says, and I want to be faithful to him. Whatever he says, that's my highest priority. Wherever he leads, that's where I want to go. Though it may mean being forsaken and abandoned and laughed at and scorned, if that's where my Savior is calling me, then that's where I want to be. And so wherever, whatever it is in your life, whatever the cult is, can I encourage you today to take your next step? Go get the cult. And come back with excitement, knowing, knowing that you are walking in God's perfect plan for your life. You want to know where there's great peace? There's great peace in the center of God's will. Why could Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, hearing these people say these things, knowing what the culmination of it all would be. Why could he do this? Because he understand, understood that at that point in history, just like at every point in history, he was in God's perfect will. 
Why could Paul say in Acts 21 as he's talking to the elders of Ephesus, I go, Ephesus, I go bound to Jerusalem knowing that bonds and imprisonments await me there. Why could he write the book of joy from some sort of prison experience? Why? Why can Esther say when she's getting ready to go before the king, if I perish, I perish. Why could Abraham leave everything he knew behind and follow God to a place that he did not know? Why could he take his son up to the top of a mountain being willing to sacrifice him? Why could Noah build a boat for a hundred years in the face of opposition with joy in his heart? Because they had great confidence that that very thing in front of them was the cult that God had for them in their lives. And your cult is not going to look like my cult. But we all have a cult, friend. My simple question to leave you with is this. Will you go get the cult? Do you know what happens when I go get the cult, and you go get the cult, and you go get the cult, and you go get the cult? Do you know what happens? The name of Christ is lifted up. And what happens when Christ is lifted up? promised he will draw all men to himself. Is there really anything better to be a part of than that? I don't think so. I don't think so. You say, well, what if I don't go get my cult? Understand the cult will be gotten. may not be by you, but God's plan will always come to be. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of God's plan. If you're here today, friend, and you've never trusted this Christ, can I tell you you're missing out? We simply oftentimes talk about Christ as a means to get to heaven. Christ is much more than a means to get to heaven. He is the true and righteous King who judges justly, who gives us His peace in the midst of turmoil. He is the one that we'll spend eternity with. And if that's the case, shouldn't we spend our time serving him now? But if you've never trusted this Christ, friend, I would ask you, will you trust him today? Maybe you just simply need to cry what they cried on the streets that day. Hosanna! Save now! Save me! Save me. And you know what he's faithful to do to all who call upon his name? Give salvation. Why? Because he's the only one who can do it. You can't earn it can't work for it, but it's a gift he'll give you if you call on his name. For those of us who are believers, let's get the cult. God, we ask this morning that you would stir our affections for you. God, you are so gracious. You're so kind. You're so loving. You've expressed that love through sending Jesus to be our Savior. As the old hymn says, God, I pray it would be our prayer. Where you lead me, I will follow. May we be content with Christ alone. If everything else was stripped away, may we be content with Christ alone. God, work in our hearts today. May we be more committed to you today than we've ever been before. Not through our efforts, but really through our submission. 
May we simply be obedient. We thank you for your love. Work in this time of invitation as we sing a song together in ways that only you can. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.